Welcome to the Future Now Media Podcast, where we believe a future now is a future one. I'm your host, Peggy Kim, and I'm the founder and president of the Future Now Media Foundation, which is a nonprofit leadership incubator for the media and entertainment industry. In this podcast series, we'll be talking to some of today's top industry leaders, executives, and professionals. We'll also hear about their personal and professional career journeys, what makes them tick, how they got to where they are today, and what they've learned along the way. And we'll also share some of the best content from our Future Now live events. So stay tuned. You may have heard that content is king, but without distribution, content is king without a country. Remember that movie Field of Dreams starring Kevin Costner? It came out almost 30 years ago, but it's a classic. And there's a line in that movie that goes, if you build it, he will come. In the case of content, you can build it, but unless you market and distribute it, they won't know to come. Distribution is critical. Today's episode features a panel discussion on distribution that took place at the 2018 Future Now Media and Entertainment Conference. Our distinguished panel of executives include HBO's Beth Main, who is the Senior Vice President of Domestic Network Distribution, Tom Friedman, the Senior Director of Strategic Relationships at Freewheel, AMC Network's Vice President of Distribution, Roy Cho, and Mark Kang, Senior Vice President of Worldwide Distribution at INSP. And leading the discussion is Nick Fabrizio, a veteran television content distribution executive who's most known for growing the reach of A&E Television Networks, Olympusat, and Asia TV. Nick kicks things off with a brief history of content distribution, and the panel discusses some of the most interesting and challenging aspects of distribution today. You'll hear how technology is changing distribution, what the finances of distribution look like, and what the future of distribution holds. Take a listen. How many people watch any form, just with a show of hands, how many people watch any form of video ever in your lives? Is it? That was a couple that have done that. Okay, that's good. How many people have a favorite show or favorite network or just a favorite genre they like to watch? Anybody? Okay, that's pretty good. But do we ever really think about exactly how it gets from point A to point B, how it gets from where that content is created and what you like to watch to where it is on your cable TV lineup as a broadcast channel or whatever other platform, uh, YouTube, whatever you're watching it on. This is what we all call content distribution. So what we've all spent our careers on is basically getting that content to where everybody can see it. So I'm going to give you a very brief history because we could literally have a three-day session just on the history of content distribution, which we won't do. But basically, in the early days, long before your time, it was just broadcast TV. If you lived in New York, it was cool to have seven channels. Some markets only had three channels. But it was all broadcast over-the-air television. Later on, along came cable TV, which clearly gave opportunities to not only have a better signal in many places, but also create all the new content genres, many of which are here today, to talk to you. Um, then came satellite TV, really the same thing as cable in terms of the content that was offered. It was just a different delivery. It was satellite instead of having that wire that comes into your home. Uh, and then came the internet, which changed everything. And that's going to be a critical part of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, and then that was followed by VOD, video on demand, which I'm sure probably most of you only watch content in some form of VOD, video on demand today, unless you actually have an appointment viewing show that you like to watch when it's live. So the point of this whole thing is, what we all have done for a living in terms of content distribution has trained, changed so much, mainly because of technology. 
technology has moved so quickly that, you know, what I, what I say is technology is, it's been a revolutionary change, but it's up against this uh, evolutionary business model. The business models haven't quite caught up yet with where, where the technology is. So you can have a lot more content, but you still have to figure out how to get it to, get a, not only get it to customers, but get customers to watch it and make your money on it. You know, monetize your content as a content owner or a network or any product, an app. So, you know, basically that's it. Everything is internet driven today. You know, you, you look at, again, you still got all your base, you got broadcast, you got cable, you got satellite. But from an internet perspective or, a, you know, a high speed Wi-Fi connection, whatnot, you've got your Hulu, YouTube, Netflix on your apps and apps galore today. Everything is an app. Everybody, everybody here has an app of one form or another today. So basically, you know, at that point, what I'd like to do now is take a moment and have each of these folks tell you a little bit about their background and how they got to where they are today. And then we're going to have some questions about how this technology change is affecting their day to day. And then the most important part of this, once you have some knowledge from that, is really to hear a lot of questions from you about where you want to go with your careers and how we can provide some guidance on that. And I'm, I'm really counting on a lot of questions on this. Okay? So thanks. So let me start with Beth, please. Beth May. Tell us about your background, please. Briefly, um, especially because all of you are, are just getting started, um, I, I want to assure you that now that all experiences are good experiences. A diversity of experiences is, is terrific. I myself had a most circuitous path to my current role. I was a professional ballet dancer as a very young person ancient history. I was a, 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 a travel writer. I worked in the Silicon Valley. I worked on my own. I've been in corporations. Um, you really can do, uh, you really can pursue anything you're interested in. Only good comes of it, and people along the way will help you. So we can talk about that more later. Great. Tom, Tom Friedman. Hey there, I'm Tom Friedman. I work for Freewheel. We're a division of Comcast. Um, we're a technology company that basically makes sure that when you're distributing your content in new platforms like over the internet and OTT and such that all of the ads get in the right place. And you probably all hate that very much, but also you would not be able to view the content in these formats if, in these environments, if, if it could not be properly monetized and the commercials couldn't get to the right places. So prior to that, um, I did a lot of content licensing and content distribution for new video platforms, including a lot of once innovative ones like cable uh, VOD and a lot of uh, digital video, OTT, and website environments. So I uh, work for National Geographic TV, Reader's Digest Video, Cablevision, and a few other places that led me into this role, kind of trying to stay on the bleeding edge of where the industry is going. Roy Cho. Uh, so um, I'm working at AMT Networks in the business distribution group. Um, I also kind of underscoring Beth's point about all diversity of experiences being important and meaningful. Uh, I also had a pretty circuitous path to where I am today. Um, I worked in politics for a couple of years in between college and law school, and um, during law school I worked in the Hill. And um, growing up, my two passions have always been politics and media slash entertainment. I've always been a big consumer of television and movies and <coughs> always been fascinated by both those spaces. And then, um, you know, after law school, I went to a law firm in New York and worked as a mergers and acquisitions and private equity lawyer and learned a lot. It was a very challenging job, but I definitely, uh, you know, it wasn't a passion of mine. 
And I ended up leaving, taking a leave of absence to run for political office. So I ran for U.S. Congress in northern New Jersey. So I won the primary, lost a general election. This is in 2014. Um, went back to my law firm and was figuring out what I wanted to do, do with the rest of my life. And out of the blue, um, a recruiter called me and um, said that there was a business side role open at AMC Networks. And I was a huge Walking Dead fan and Mad Men fan and Breaking Bad fan. So it was, um, it couldn't have been more perfect. Um, I've been with the company now for about um, just shy of two years, and it's been by far the best job I've ever had, so. Great, thanks. And last, Mark Kang, please. Great, thank you. Um, hi, y'all. Congratulations for all you guys being here and taking initiative to learn more about the industry, so you guys should really give yourself a pat on the back. Um, I just graduated and I got into fashion, worked for Ralph Lauren and, and, and David Yerman for, for a bit, and, uh, and it's amazing when you graduate, you think you want to do something and you actually do it, but it's not exactly what you want to do. Um, and I found that out at corporate sort of fashion thing, and I just really didn't like the politics and the red tapes that I had to go through. So, you know, I just changed directions and, uh, you know, um, I got into investment banking because I knew what, that's where the money's at. And <laughs> I felt like, wow, money is great, but it's not exactly my cup of tea either. So I left that by accident just because I had a, uh, I got really sick actually. I had a bleeding ulcer when I was 24 um, working for a hedge fund. Um, it just really intense uh, pressure. And after that, you know, I started temping, not knowing what I wanted to do. And then I just ha happened to fall into a, at the time, Core TV, which is True TV now, owned by Turner Networks, um, at its infancy. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to grow with that company. And then I got into another startup, um, another network called Sportsman Channel, where I headed distribution. And this is sort of the third network um, I'm working for. And in between, I want to explore something else. So I did do a little short stint at an agency, a talent agency. At the time, I think I watched too much Entourage and I thought, man, I could be like Ari, man, what's going on? So I kind of embarked on that and man, that was a really, really, I, working with celebrities and mostly hip hop artists was really fun. But at the same time, it was not something that I wanted to do just because it was basically babysitting all the time, and, and it wasn't as fun as I thought uh, it was going to be. So today, I, I work for INSP, which is a family-friendly content, um, over 80 million subscribers, and I'm and, um, just happy to be here. Great. Thanks. Thanks. So that was actually a really nice plug for Entourage and HBO. It was. I like that. That's pretty good. So if you get nothing else out of this session, and I, I assure you, you will, think of the diverse backgrounds that everybody here has had and how they've weaved it into their current careers and how it, they just enabled themselves with their experiences, whether you know, from early career days to current, to get into these new roles. You guys already have that. You've got that with any jobs you've had while you're in school, with any courses you're taking, with any internships. So don't discount all of that knowledge from your very first job you know, as a young you know, child or 12, whatever you started working, till now. Because everything you've done will play into your success. So, okay. Let me jump right in here on the topic of what I started out with in terms of the transition of television, where it was and where it's going and you know, where we currently are. So let me start with Beth, please. So digital technology with the change, how has that impact, impacted what you do, content distribution for HBO? It's, it's redefined what a distributor looks like. So we, we, the, the network has grown up with a certain kind of uh, distributor for so long, uh, the cable TV company, then the satellite 
TV company, then the telephone company, and now it's our digital partners, the Apples and the Amazons of the world. Um, so at, at HBO, it is our desire, and I imagine this is true for all programmers sitting here, we, we want to be uh, wherever viewers are. And so um, we need to be Switzerland. We need mm -hmm. to climb in up every tree. And so that's what our attempt uh, is, to be, to be relevant, to be wherever uh, viewers are going. Great, great. So let me go, now this was a, the, the perspective from a pay service. Is it very different from, say, an AMC uh, in terms of being a basic network, which is an ad-supported, generally distributed by every cable operator, every, every platform, it's pretty much everywhere. Is it, has this transition been different? Um, yeah, absolutely. So um, I don't have the, the context in terms of, you know, besides being obviously a big fan of television content, um, I don't have the perspective in terms of how the industry has necessarily changed over time. But what I will say is that just in two years alone since I've been here, um, I know from a business perspective, you know, our perspective is constantly changing in terms of what's important. How do you get viewers? How do you get new viewers? How do you hold on to existing viewers? Um, how do you kind of grow your subscriber base? And all these questions are going to be certainly impacted by technology, which is constantly changing in viewership patterns, um, you know, based upon age group, demographic, um, you know, where you live, all these different things will impact how you watch content and where you watch content. And I will say certainly technology is changing that in a very fast way, but it's, it's interesting because there's a tremendous amount of opportunity, but at the same time, um, I'm sorry, um, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to change, but at the same time, you also have to figure out how you manage your existing business. So, um, you know, I saw a statistic recently that said, um, I think Nielsen did a study that wanted to understand how people were watching television content today, and I think it was like 94% of all, you know, gross minutes of television watching content was viewed on television still, and TV-connected devices, your Apple TVs and your Rokus. So, and I think it was like less than 1% of content was actually watched on mobile, like television content. So I think, you know, for a long period of time, for the last couple of years, people keep saying, um, you know, the, the world is changing, the sky is falling, um, younger people are going to be watching television and content on their phones and not on traditional televisions, but um, that certainly has not really been the case yet. Now, of course, it will change, you know, over time, but I think it's just important for us to both, you know, manage our existing legacy businesses, what we've, you know, what we've been able to do to get to get us here today, but also kind of keeping our eyes forward and, and innovating and forcing ourselves to adapt and change over time. So. Okay, great, thanks. So, so Mark, so we've got a, a pay uh, perspective, a basic network like an AMC. Uh, you come at it more from a family brand, an inspirational brand. Uh, is there anything different than what you've heard here that you would comment on? Yeah, I mean, I think when we see the evolution of TV, uh, there's been a golden age of, of TV that's been happening, and this is probably the fourth wave of it. You know, you have in the 30s and 40s when TV got really popular with few networks, as Nick was talking about. In the 80s and 90s, you also have this just influx of all these TV shows, sitcoms, that people just watched a lot of TV. And, and for you folks out there, who watches over four hours of TV today, like every day? Anyone? Okay, we see a few hands. Don't be shy. Four and a half hours is the average Americans that watch television. Can you imagine that? I mean, they, hopefully they go to work, but I mean, that's a lot of TV, right? And the trend continues, and, and you know, I think John Langraff said it best in FX when he coined the word peak TV. That's happening right now, 450 shows, scripted shows a year, more than any time in our lives, that is coming out 
from production companies. There's a lot of opportunities for production because they're just making more TV shows and there's more platforms to be on and these OTT over the top guys are willing to pay top dollars. I mean, you can't compete with $8 billion of, of, of programming buying from Netflix and all these other guys. So, you know, I, I think the digital revolution has really opened up a lot of content makers, and for the people who are looking into the future of TV, who's wants a career in TV, I think it's a very, very exciting time right now. But at the same time, it's so highly competitive that your content has got to be dope. If it's not, then it can't fly. I mean, basically, that's what it comes down to. It yeah. just dies on the vine, right. and you spend all these money. So it's got to be really, really well done. Uh, but at the same time, the quality has been going up. So it's a very exciting time here today. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Mark. So, so now, you hit on a good point, monetization. You don't want it to die on the vine. That's where Tom comes in. Uh, with all these new platforms, Tom, Tom's platforms, and I'm going to let him describe it, basically, it's about how you can generate money with your advertising dollars and obviously to make your profits. So you want to explain a little bit more, please, Tom, about what you do? Yeah, sure. So uh, traditional TV, linear television, there's advertising, commercial breaks, and you're kind of scheduled into the show, and you're used to that. When you watch content online, and it varies for YouTube stuff versus professional television stuff distributed online through apps like Sling TV and DirecTV Now and et cetera. But um, basically, I mean, there's so much that goes on. Uh, there's so many opportunities around television and distribution. So here's one example. So the company I work for actually manages the delivery of all the commercials into the TV commercial break, which is different than when you're watching the same show and you're watching the commercials on regular TV. And it's called dynamic ad insertion. And basically it says, hey, it's time for a commercial. Uh, what is the best commercial to serve right now based on a, you know, a zillion different factors in this split second? I'm doing the math there at my desk. What's the best commercial to serve to Joe right now? No, not really. We have software that does that. Um, so basically, all of the big TV companies use our software to manage all of their commercial advertising campaigns. They enter it into our system, and whenever it's time for a commercial and you're watching any of these shows through an app or a website or a phone, there's a digital call made from the video player to our system and says, hey, we need commercials now, and our system gives the commercials and inserts them into the commercial slot. So um, this is important because, the, especially for big TV companies and, and premium television programming, the ability to monetize it and effectively monetize it and make sure the right commercials with huge giant brands like Ford and Geico, et cetera, get into the right spot uh, is what makes it possible to create and, and distribute content in these formats. So it's kind of like a behind the scenes thing that nobody really thinks about, but uh, we play a very integral role in the evolution of the of distribution of content into new platforms because we enable the monetization of, of basically the, the making sure the ads go into the right place. Very good. Thanks, Tom. So, so we've talked very broadly about all the change and, and how it's impacting things. If I was to ask each of you for one specific way it's changed your role and your brand as we look again from the traditional days of cable for everybody here to where we are today in terms of we mentioned apps, we talk about you know, the fact that you can get HBO Go, you can get HBO Now, you know, there's different models you can get. You can get it through your distributor, uh, you, know, you can authenticate, which is a, another topic for another day. But again, if, if you pick the one single thing that's had the biggest effect on your organizations or your personal role. Beth, what would it be, please? Um, well, I'll speak to personal role then. My, my role currently at HBO is to manage the partnerships that we have with all of our cable television partners. 
and these partnerships represent about 50% of the revenue that, that HBO generates domestically. And so what's changed for me is that um, the conversations I'm having with the cable television operators, the Comcasts, Charters, Coxes, and Altices of the world, um, have become, um, there's been a big drop in a level of trust. So it's harder for me to um, engage productively in long-range planning to get the most, to make sure that they're getting the most out of their contract with us. Because um, every time they pick up, uh, every time they look at the news, it's um, our announcement about another partnership with a, with a digital provider. And uh, the, the digital providers have, in some respects, superior capabilities. And so, um, it's making my job tougher in that mm -hmm. way. But so I've got to lean in hard to the equity that I have built, that I and my team have built with our cable partners over the years uh, so that we can try to stay engaged together and solve new problems together. Right, thanks. I mean, it's such a dichotomy. On this side, you've got all this opportunity with all these new platforms that are available anytime, anywhere. And on the other side, you've got the challenges with your traditional partners in terms of how you manage those relationships, as Beth said. Thanks, that's great. Tom, from your perspective, it's going to be a little different, but so how is it uh, affecting what yeah, you do? Yeah, I'd say along a similar line, I'll, I'll speak on behalf of our clients, and our clients are basically all the big cable broadcast and cable companies is aggregating the audience because the audience is being fractured, right? It's, it's a, little, a little bit to your point where you used to just turn on a TV and you have millions of eyeballs on a show. Now there's all these different opportunities. Uh, not only you're competing with other content, but even you're competing with audience just on other screens and you want to make sure you're reaching your audience on wherever screen they are. The impact of this is on advertisers because if an advertiser buys a spot on a primetime show, they're expecting a certain amount of people to watch, but those people are not just watching on traditional TV anymore. They're watching on phones and OTT apps and computers, etc. So the ability to re-aggregate your audience and distribute your content to wherever your audience is and then to be able to also make sure that advertiser's ad gets into the format and the mm -hmm. show wherever that audience is, I think is a big shift um, in the industry in general that everybody's trying to solve for. And we just we provide one of the mechanisms to help them do that in aggregating, uh, making sure that the ad gets to wherever the audience is. Okay. But I think this this fragmentation and the reaggregation is a major uh, shift in the industry right now. And as a content producer or a, or a network, you really have to struggle with um, making sure you're distributing your content in all the different formats where your audience might be viewing it, which is much more complex than it used to be. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for that. So just start, please, thinking. We're not ready for questions just yet, but start thinking about those questions. And when, you are, when we are ready, we have two mics up here that we'll ask you to come on up to. Roy, same question. Yeah, um, I think I'll probably just expand upon uh, what's already been said, but from my perspective, I think that's absolutely true that uh, managing the existing relationships with the current cable providers that we've dealt with in the past, like you know the charters, the Comcast, the DirecTVs of the world, that is incredibly important and will continue to be important. But I think what's changed is there's a level of sophistication and everything becomes a negotiation. So I think whereas in the past, um, from what I understand, a lot of the relationship building that we had with our cable providers, with our distributors, 
distributors from you know from our end being you know a content provider um, you know it was a lot of lunches you're spending time you're going on you're sponsoring events it's uh, you know corporate sponsorships and you know it's great and it's it's fun and it's exciting and you're building a relationship but nowadays when you know both the distributors are, are facing tremendous pressure and stresses on their side and us as content providers like Mark was alluding to before there's so much content out there that we're competing for eyeballs um, there's stress and there's pressure on both sides and I think now we're in a position where how do you kind of manage your existing business and your existing relationships while looking at um, these you know shiny sexy new objects out in the space like the sling TVs and the direct TV nows and the and the YouTube TVs where all you need is internet you don't need cable anymore so there's a lot of young people who are saying I don't want to have a cable subscription I don't want to have you know a, th a thousand channels I don't need it um, I'll have my Netflix and I'll have my YouTube TV and I'll have a couple other services whether it's Hulu whatever it else and that's enough for them but um, it's interesting to think about from a value proposition because you know I have you know I have Verizon right, which my, my cable provider and I have I get internet I get data from them and I also get um, I get television so I, I actually tried calling up and, and trying to renegotiate recently and and I'm paying like 150 bucks a month for for those services and I was thinking about it and the person on the phone you know kudos to the Verizon customer service rep who was really good and we started going through the math and it's you know for data for internet alone in my house it's like at least $60 right and then a Netflix subscription is 10 bucks and then if I want to have you know an additional service like a YouTube TV or direct TV now whatever it is um, with my internet to be able to get particular channels and it's another 30 to 50 bucks depending on what service you're getting right so all of a sudden you're almost at that $150 price point so you know it doesn't really make sense to do that and cut the core necessarily I, I mean I don't know and I think a lot of this is going to be changing behavior but um, based upon consumer behavior and how people want to watch content but I think ultimately it's um, again kind of keeping our eyes forward and figuring out how you manage the new I'm sorry the new entrants into the market these new companies that are coming out and providing streaming services um, and, and really appealing to Millennials and younger uh, while still maintaining relationships with the existing partnership partners which are incredibly important from a revenue perspective great thanks please sure um, INSP sort of evolution is sort of interesting we were a Christian religious channel when I first got there and they hired me part to rebrand it into more of a uh, family friendly content so the, the philosophy was you know we're reaching out to only other Christians so we need to reach out to non-Christians or people who don't believe in our spiritual beliefs and, and, and use the moral values and, and the good um, content to get people to um, just do better things. Because, I mean, in media, if you got to understand, it's, it's, a, it's the only form, if you think about it, with one button, you could light up 100 billion, you know, however many the population in the world is to watch your content. And that is some powerful, powerful stuff. And, and as we engulf and as we take in uh, this content, you got to think of it as, as almost like, like food. I mean, fast food nation, if you're going through that, obviously you're, you're, you're not going to be physically well. Um, same thing psychologically. We don't feel it as much, but the content that we do create, it, we believe that it has to be good for your soul. Something that you watch that inspires people to do better. Um, having said that, you know, 
what we've been forced through this whole digital revolution was that we needed to create our own original content. We were acquiring shows, and a lot of the networks, when they rebrand or when they start out, they buy a lot of acquisition, acquire a lot of uh, shows that, that, that are popular for the audience. And then suddenly what happens is that content gets diluted all over different platforms, and now you don't have the exclusive content anymore. And therefore, we decided to start to create and produce our own content. And when we did, and when we created about seven movies, feature movies, and about four different series, it's, it's magical. I mean, we went from 110 placement on Nielsen Media uh, to now top 25 network, uh, even beating a lot of the Viacom, um, not to pick on them, but you know, their, their uh, TV network. So it, it, the, the originality, authenticity, when you hear these things, it doesn't only apply just in life, but in content as well. When it's authentic and when it's exclusive and when it's original, people see it, and that's how you really get success and get the right traction for, for success. Great, thank you, Mark. Let me just ask, so how many folks out there, again, please, with a show of hands, have either a cable or a satellite TV subscription? Okay, so that's still a pretty good amount of folks. Because, uh, again, we always hear about cord cutting, but really what you're doing in many cases, in my opinion, is content cutting or platform cutting and choosing other options, because I'm going to assume that everybody has some form of Wi-Fi or high-speed connection in their home. So that leads to my next question. How many people are using some platforms, you know, one of the app platforms, such as a Roku, Fire Stick, Android, Apple TV, etc. Yeah, so a good amount of folks there, and I'm assuming that's where you're uh, watching or getting, consuming most of your content. Uh, and his last question, is it safe to say that it's best screen available. So your phone is great if that's your only option, but if you have an opportunity to watch something on your screen at home, is that a safe? Who agrees that best screen available is the way to go? All right, so it kind of addresses the point that we talked about earlier about mobile. Yeah, mobile's important, but it's more about convenience, I would think, personally, is my opinion. Uh, although there are times I'll catch my kids sitting there watching, like, you know, they'll have this big screen TV and they're doing something on their phone, and it's a TV show or something. But so before we get to questions, uh, basically for here. Anything else that anybody would like to add on this topic? Uh, does, you don't have to, just <laughs> optional. <laughs> I mean, I just wanted to make sure everybody understood how our business works in terms of revenue. So, you know, for a cable network like AMC and INSP, uh, the traditional model for basic cable, we have two revenue streams. One is from ad sales and also, I don't know if you know this, but part of your cable bill actually comes to all the TV networks. Um, so when, when you're getting these escalating like, you know, fees or, or your, your, your uh, cable channel and cable service price goes up, you know, as much as people like to blame their cable, local cable company, a lot of it really comes from the content, not to blame ourselves, but I just want to make sure people understand that the revenue also, part of the bill that goes to is, is, is expensive because all the channels that are out there. And hence the reason why now the whole ecosystem is bursting out and everybody's getting off of it and the reason why it's costing $150 a month. So um, it, it's interesting to just kind of know, understand where the revenue comes from because I think that's a, an area that, that there is a lot of uh, career opportunities because um, you always want to be on the forefront of revenue generating uh, department. So. Great, thank you. Anybody else? Anything you want to add? I guess I'd be interested in what our audience wants to, us to talk about. There you go. So to that, let's get, that's a good segue for questions. <laughs> All right, who's first? Okay, we have the mic. If you could please just step up to a mic and uh, ask you away. You could form lines on either mic. That yeah, would be great. That, thank you. Lines would be uh, very helpful. 
Please go ahead. Hi, um, I'm Kyla Perry. I go to the uh, Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. Um, my major is uh, visual arts and technology. My question for you is in reference to Mr. Cho's uh, point of cutting the cord. How do you combat the distribution, uh, illegal distribution of your content, and how um, do you plan on uh, changing that for the future? Because that seems to be like one of the major ways of getting shows illegally. Um, yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, it's something that we've talked about uh, internally here and something that's obviously top of mind for a lot of people. Um, the Walking Dead and Game of Thrones are actually two of the most pirated shows right now out there. So, um, you know, people want their content, they want it for free, and they want to figure out creative ways to do it. And I think that you talk to kind of, you talk to a lot of younger people and they're proud of that, right? They're proud of not having to pay for a cable bill. They're proud of being able to, you know, have some particular place where they can watch free content. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's it's a really good question. I mean, I don't think I have a good answer for you, but I'm just acknowledging the fact that this is something that we're struggling with every single day, and we're figuring out how to do that. I mean, the music industry faced the same issue before, right, in terms of how you struggle with that and how you find the right balance. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think you're, you touch on something that's actually really important for us because we have to monetize our content. I mean, people talk about distribution platforms, right, but ultimately what's really, really important, especially with all the clutter of all these television shows out there, is really good content. I mean, content ultimately will be king because you know, people will search out the shows that they care about and they want to watch. And when you have uh, particular shows that people want to watch live, um, that's even better, right? Because, you know, you could watch particular shows on demand. You could watch it. You can basically go into your um, apartment for the entire weekend and binge 10 hours of television on Netflix. But then when you have water cooler shows that you could talk about, like Game of Thrones or Walking Dead or, you know, whatever else that people actually want to watch live and be able to talk about it on social media, that becomes very powerful. So Yeah, and I think also creating a non- illegal a legal environment in which uh, it's a better experience to watch the show than whatever the pirated experience is making it economical and making it a better ex experience for the viewers so they prefer to seek out the legitimate way of viewing it at hbo we distinguish between password sharing and out and out stealing and so um, uh, i think that as companies we're going to have to build departments and and uh, uh, experts who can scan the internet and, and, and look for it and prosecute accordingly. But password sharing is, is still something we're trying to figure out because uh, HBO is still trying to figure out what its point of view is on the matter because we, th we think um, in large part much good comes of password sharing initially until um, say a younger person gets a job and can afford another alternative. Um, so much to be figured out on that score. Please. Good morning. Thank you for, for, the, for the wonderful insights from the industry. My name is Jana Respo, and I wonder how do you discern how much of the commercial time can you put on a TV versus the context? Because people always complain, oh, there is so much commercials in one movie. <laughs> like, how do you discern, like, how much time do you want to spend on the commercials and how much of the real context, content? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, so, in in the U.S., traditionally, there's an hour-long program or a half-hour-long program gets a certain amount of content time and a certain amount of commercial time, and that's a long-established model for traditional linear TV. Granted, it should always be questioned. Um, I, I think the dynamics change when you move into a digital environment where you can, based on the dynamic ad insertion I described, you can shorten the commercial breaks and very deliberately dictate how many commercials you want to include uh, kind of on the fly. 
And we actually do a lot of studies for television viewing online to see what's the threshold of for what people will tolerate for commercials and still continue through the program. And speaking for premium television content and not kind of user-generated YouTube content, because people are going very deliberately to watch a favorite show and the consumer sort of understands that there's a relationship between viewing the content for sort of free, you might have to pay for your subscription, right, and watching advertising, there's a greater tolerance for watching ads when it's higher quality content. But there's a lot of studies being done right now to say, hey, if I shorten the amount of advertising, it's more valuable because the people are watching more, they're not taking long breaks and you know, going to the kitchen. So it's a great question, and I don't think anybody knows the, the, the right exact formula, but it's something that people are looking at very deliberately and playing with a lot of models at this point. Speaking of models, at HBO, our, our model is one in, uh, uh, that precludes advertising. There is no advertising on HBO, and that it does make a, a, it's a big hurdle we don't have to confront. Yeah, and, you know, from AMC's perspective, something that we're struggling with because, you know, we have, we're a traditional, you know, we have commercials. Uh, Walking Dead has commercial breaks and we insert commercials there, but, and we're monetizing that. We have a lot of revenue from those advertising partnerships that we have, but um, we're also kind of experimenting. We have a new product out there called AMC Premiere, which essentially, if you're, you know, for example, if you're a Comcast subscriber and you have AMC as part of your television package, then for an extra five bucks a month, uh, you can get, you know, you can get our shows live at the same time as they air, but without commercial. So, for example, if The Walking Dead starts at you know, 9 p.m. on a Sunday night and you are choosing to pay an additional $5, then you know, you'll, your service will start, AMC Premier Service will start The Walking Dead at the same time, but it'll end about 15 minutes or so before, right? So you'll have you know, 15 minutes to be able to you know, have spoilers, for example, and know who, who died or whatever happened. So for, for a show like The Walking Dead, which is very socially active and the audience is very socially engaged on Twitter, et cetera, it's, um, you know, 15 minutes is a long time to be able to know what happens before everybody else does. But um, again, this is something that we're just starting to experiment with. So. Yeah, that's a good. Please, your question. Hi. Uh, First of all, thank you all for being here. I'm Natalie. I'm a rising senior at the University of Michigan. I'm interested in marketing and strategy and film and entertainment. Um, My question was, Tom, you you spoke about the fracturing of the landscape and overall how the success of a television show. I'm sure the definition of that has changed a lot since you can't typically get the same numbers that you used to 15, 20 years ago. So, how has that redefinition of success changed your roles in your respective companies? Very good question. I think that for me, I'm not a programmer specifically, so I would I would defer to you all. You want to take it? <laughs> sure. Um, the fragmentation. Uh, I mean, from deal uh, structure, as we're dealing with distributors, uh, the landscape has extremely. I mean, it, it completely changed in sense that we no longer could be dependent on the linear channel model, although right now, bulk of our revenue comes from that, um, still because we're still at the 80 million. But just to give you a perspective, just last year alone, uh, four to five million subscribers actually cut cords. So that trend going down constantly, we're sort of fumbling and trying to figure out how do we get on as many platform as possible. So that's what we're studying right now. But you know the thing, the frustrating part is that these uh, OTT doesn't have a perfect way of measuring the audience. So 
when we, we get paid by CPM, which is cost per thousand, uh, through advertising. So when that measurement is not counted as part of the ad sales, then it gets really difficult because you're losing subs even though you get on other platforms you're not getting credit for those things so it's a struggle so so you know we combat that by charging maybe ott platforms a little bit more revenue in terms of i'm sorry meaning um, affiliate fees so the per subscriber they'll pay us x amount of dollars for that uh, household so we we are constantly shifting to understand where things are and i don't think anybody really knows we know that there are a lot of cord cutters coming right now and and that's going to continue to happen and when that happens you know obviously we have to find another revenue stream to make that up yeah i would, I would just i'm sorry you good? no i was just going to add ahead, that please. um from hbo's perspective um it's about staying focused on what we do and what we do well right. and that's the creation of of shows that people want to watch and so the distribution of them uh is uh, We've got to be everywhere, so our effort is to be sure that we are, and then keep focused on building great shows so that people will f come to us regardless where they need to go to find us. Right. And I was just going to add that, you know, from a marketing perspective, first of all, it is, content is king. You know, it, it's about good content. People will find good content, but social media marketing has just you know, ex exponentially you know, grown in importance to getting the message out. And you have all these platforms, but it's the social media marketing, in addition to traditional marketing, that'll help people find you. So there's, that's career opportunities right within that as well. Thank Let's you. get back over here, please. Thank you for your question. Next. Hello, everyone. My name is Sterling D I'm sorry, I'm getting over a cold. <clears throat> sorry. Um, my name is Sterling Danzi. Um, I guess unlike a lot of people here, I'm not a current student or maybe a recent grad. And what I found interesting in your story is that you guys made a lot of transition, career transitions. And um, similar to you, I recently worked in financial services. It really does suck. <laughs> and I'm trying to transition into media entertainment and possibly distribution. So can you guys go into detail about how you really made that leap, those decisions, when you're not really a recent grad, so you don't fit the early college career, you know, a mold, but you're not experienced enough to really come in with a lot of um, experience. I'll start with that one because I have a point of view about it, and I think I'm, uh, I have several years on everyone on this panel. So um, uh, be curious mm -hmm. and circulate. Circulate like hell. I think it really is that, that simple, by which I mean think about the things that you're interested in. It doesn't mean you've got a five-year strategic plan for yourself you know exactly what you want to do and you're going to go after it you don't you don't have to know that much you don't have to have that kind of clarity but start with what you're interested in and seek out people who are doing that thing and schedule time to meet them for a coffee for a 30 minute in the office whatever it is um, own the burden of keeping the conversation going have a, a point of view have good questions um, so that you're not, you know, you're making good use of that time. Mm -hmm. But I, I have found in my life, having made many very uh, uh, dramatic transitions, not related to one another in any obvious way, that um, if you show up and know how to tell your story, how to, how to say what, what lights you up and what sucks you dry, what you've been doing and what you don't like about it and why and why, why it, make, it makes you think about this other thing that they are doing and you'd love to know more about what they do and how they do it, I guarantee you 
that as you plant those seeds out in the world, some of them will grow um, on their own. Someone will be in a, in a meeting looking for a person to do X and remember that conversation they had with you. And they say, you know, I think I'm going to call that Sterling. I think, I think this might be a good role for her. Just circulate, talk to everybody, have a story, tell your story, ask for help. And uh, the help shows up. It's amazing. Yeah, and I, yeah. And just great. That's that's. I hate to do this, but I cannot believe we're out of time. But your questions will not go unanswered after the panel. We're all here to talk. Uh, I will be at the the mentoring sessions later on. We have tables and the round tables. I don't know who else will be able to attend. I believe some of us will. Uh, and we're always available after today. You can always get our information and reach out. So I do apologize for not being able to take any more right now. But thank you so much for your attention today, and hopefully we provided something good. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Future Now Media Podcast. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, as well as on Instagram and LinkedIn. Till next time, I'm Peggy Kim. And remember, a future now is a future one.